After a tense night of negotiations, a deal was reached yesterday at Egypt's COP27 climate summit to set up a loss and damage fund. While a lot of the details will still have to be fleshed out, the fund will help frontline communities cope with the immediate costs of climate-related disasters, something that's long overdue. In Fiji, one of the most vulnerable countries, dozens of villages will soon be underwater. In fact, some already are. They've come up with the most detailed plan ever devised to relocate communities affected by the climate crisis, but it is really no small task. To tell us about it, I'm joined by Kate Lyons, the Guardian's Pacific editor. Also on the line is Netani Rika, who's Development and Communications Manager for the Pacific Conference of Churches, and all the way from Egypt, where she's been attending COP27, is Makarata Wangavonovono, coordinator of the NGO Climate Talk. Thank you all for joining us. My pleasure. Kate, you recently were in Fiji to report on this national relocation plan, which I had not heard about until I read your article. Can you tell us briefly about this plan and, and kind of where are we with it? Yeah, it's, it's quite an extraordinary plan. Um, and experts in climate relocation say it's, it's as far as any country has ever got in developing um, a comprehensive, thoughtful you know, national policy for planned relocation, which is such a tragic thing to have to develop a policy for. But um, Fiji is so impressive in that it's doing it in such a concerted and comprehensive and clear-eyed way. Uh, so basically, the government has spent years uh, working out how planned relocation across the country will work. Um, they have been engaging communities and government officials and stakeholders like uh, Makareta and Natani, who've got on the call, um, to yeah, devise this policy. And so I've had a look at the, um, the, the sort of draft we're at now, which is in the final stages of, of consultation before it goes to Cabinet for approval, which should happen quite soon. Um, and at the moment, it's sort of 130 pages of very dense text full of um, really, really detailed um, information about exactly who is responsible at each step, which government department, um, and what the process is like, how long each step should take, what the checks and balances are so that community consent is always um, is always there. It's, it's incredibly detailed. It just absolutely, it felt like a sort of choose-your-own-adventure novel looking at it because it had these spider graphs that said, you know, if this is Indigenous land, then the responsible ministry is this. If it is a settlement, non-Indigenous um, community, then the responsible ministry is this. If the risk is from cyclones, then this particular department conducts the risk assessment of the land. If it's from flooding or from landslides, then it's this department. Like, it's just, it's so, so... Uh, detailed and sort of meticulous, this plan. Um, and it, yeah, as I said, it's in the final stages before it, it becomes uh, national policy. Yes, it's had lots of iterations, of course, because it has to be able to deal with so many different scenarios. I think, Kate, uh, currently 42 villages are earmarked for potential relocation. I know you visited a couple of them that have already been moved or are in the process. W what can you tell us about the range of relocation experiences you saw? Well, I mean, it's incredibly, it's incredibly diverse, and that it's part of the reason that this document, this national policy, uh, is, always, is often described as a living document because, as the different experiences of villages happen, they feed that back into the policy, and 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 the policy changes. Um, but for instance, I visited uh, a one village that was the first village to be relocated, uh, Vunidongaloa. 
And that was uh, a, a village that moved and knew it would have to move for several decades, really. A dec- it's been talking about relocation since the 50s because of sea level rise. And that just um, was, you know, poisoning the village, basically, poisoning the land, creeping in, devouring houses. And they moved back and back and back and adapted and adapted until they could adapt no more. Um, and that that relocation is broadly considered to be quite successful. There were some issues and some uh, teething problems that... Um, had to be worked through, like they built the houses in the new village with no kitchens, um, which, as uh, Macareta told me, and, and uh, was perhaps a sign that they should have added some women in the consultation for the, the building um, plans. Mm. Um, but broadly it was considered quite successful. Um, but then you have another village, which isn't too far, is it just a few hours away on the same island, uh, Namavatu, and that Relocation happened quite suddenly. Um, They were hit badly by Cyclone Anna at the beginning of 2021. Mm. And there was a big land sort of slippage on the hill where the village is located and the land was deemed unsafe by the government. People were told to move immediately. Um, And now we're, you know, we're approaching two years since that cyclone and the people of Namavatu are still living in AusAid donated disaster relief sort of refugee-style tents on the grounds of a church uh, while they wait for um, the very slow process of a new village to be built for them um, and for that relocation to happen. Mm. And there are all sorts of reasons why that has been slower and why that um, has been complicated. But, yeah, it's just depending on the disaster, the location, the resources of the community, whether the... um, whether the clan has safe land within its clan boundaries to move to, um, all of those things affect the ability to relocate quickly and well. Come back to some of that later, but I want to bring in Makareta. Makareta, we've got you at COP, uh, where a loss and damage fund has been announced. Are you hopeful that this will help with this process of relocations in Fiji? Oh, yes, I'm very hopeful. Uh, it's a huge progress from what has been negotiated in previous years. Last year, the Scottish government gave a million towards loss and damage, and that money is supposed to go directly to the grassroots level, to the communities. We got about 45000 US dollars from that. Now, we had meetings with the Scottish government while I was there, and they had promised another $5 million, you know, that would again, go through the same processes. So um, that's really not enough to reduce the loss and damage that's going to happen in the future because we really need to phase out fossil fuels. So that is the next, you know, challenge for uh, NGO communities to be looking at. But our communities such as Nambavatu, which Kit mentioned, Zongia and others, this will definitely um, cut short the process and people can live in dignity uh, once more and in comfort. Yes, yes. I want to bring Natani in now. Moving is not something people are mostly choosing to do. It's, it's a sort of last resort. How have people told you they feel about having to do this, moving away from their, their land and, and other things too? I suppose the, the, they feel hurt they feel a sense of loss at leaving behind land which they consider to be their birthright. 
So it's a deeply spiritual uh, experience. Thinking about leaving and then actually deciding to make the move. So it's not been easy. And uh, in some cases, uh, villagers feel that they have not been consulted enough. They haven't been uh, told what is going to happen. And in some cases, they have to move to land that doesn't belong to them. Yes. And so that can that can open up huge difficulties yeah. in uh, in dealing with other clans and other tribes. I understand a a particularly tricky task, and I can only begin to imagine this, is relocating people's burial grounds or for them to agree to leave them. Can you tell us a bit more about that? Yes. Um, the Pacific Conference of Churches has accompanied the villages of uh, of Wurindongoloa, uh, who didn't want to leave their ancient uh, burial grounds. Uh, it's been important for the Conference of Churches to to accompany the villages and to explain that uh, it is okay to leave certain things uh, behind and uh, that there is a need to focus on the future and uh, the lives of the young people, the children who are growing up, and to to provide a safe space for, for the vulnerable, for the elderly, uh, for people living with disabilities. And that um, if I were to be slightly crass about it, that the dead can look after themselves. Uh, but uh, it's, it's not an easy uh, thing to say to, to villagers who are who feel that they are dishonoring uh, their ancestors by leaving them, uh, abandoning them, and moving to uh, a new place. Yeah, both of those, either deciding to uh, bring them with them, that would be incredibly confronting as well, or to leave them, very confronting. I, I want to go back to Kate Lyons from The Guardian. One of the things you wrote about, Kate, was that there are, there are essentially two complicating factors in this process. One is access to land, uh, which, which Natania has touched on, and there's also access to money. Just briefly explain why both have been so fraught. Yeah, those are the, the two real obstacles that communities face. The, the land question is um, because in Fiji so much land is um, Indigenous land, Aitoke land, um, it, it is much, much simpler for a community to move if within its clan boundaries, its Matangali um, boundaries, it has land that is safe to move to. So that that was the case for Vunidongaloa. Um, they were able to to relocate within their um, within their boundaries. If it's the case that there is no safe land or no appropriate land for a village to be built on a relocated village, then the community has a really tricky um, situation. They face either negotiating with a neighbouring clan to be given land to move to um, or negotiating with the government for a lease of government land to move to. Um, and either one is complicated. So in Namavatu's case, they, they now have a plot of land, which I was able to visit, sort of 12-acre plot of government land that they can lease from the government. They're really happy about that and they hope building can start soon. Um, but in, in other cases, um, so for instance, in Tukuraki, which is a village on the main island of Fiji um, in, the, in the highlands, they negotiated with a neighbouring clan to move to land within that 
clan's boundaries. Uh, but it doesn't it doesn't work like it would in in Australia where you might um, have a formal commercial lease with you know signed rights and money exchange. That that's just not how it would operate in Fiji. The land will always belong to that clan who you know whose land it is. Um, but it's given for uh, um, residential purposes to you know, for use for the other, the clan. And that, that can be complicated. So in, in Tukaraki's case, um, it was going smoothly. The rebuild, you know, rebuilding happened, the community moved in, and then uh, some tensions arose between the relocated community and the, the host community. Mm. Um, and that was partly because the development of the relocated community um, exceeded the sort of development that had been put in by the host community, and so there was some um, some resentment that and some jealousy of the you know the the houses that had solar panels and flushing toilets and septic tanks and a poultry farm and and fish ponds and other resources that the host community didn't have, which feels quite <coughs> excuse me quite understandable uh, in many ways, and and even that so that. Tukaraki experience has been folded in to the to the government's relocation plan now, so that the con- the development of the host community has to be considered when a, a relocated community is moving to their land. So there is recognition of of that experience and a way to feed that in. Yeah, it's 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 one of those things. It's obvious afterwards. Very easy not to have thought of it at the time. That's right. And, I mean, that's the thing. This is such an unprecedented thing we're seeing in Fiji, Um, but sadly will become very, very common and normal around the world, Um, which is why it's so extraordinary that they they really are trailblazing this path um, for the the rest of the world, quite tragically. And then the other issue you mentioned was money, and that, uh, I mean, it's just, it's an expensive exercise to move a whole community because we're not just talking about moving a few houses. You're talking about roads and water and electricity and infrastructure and a, potentially a school or health centre. Um, you're talking about a church. You're talking about a whole lot of things um, that go with that relocation. And it's difficult to put a number on it. I asked the climate change minister and he said, it's just, you can't compare, you know, you might have a village of 40 people compared to a village of 400 and how far you're moving and the risks and all of that, but several million dollars for a relocated community. Um, And when you think there are 42 on the list and the, like, how much it's all going to add up to. There's just not enough money in the government coffers to pay for every community that requires relocation, um, which, and, and villagers often contribute. Um, they contribute resources. They might have timber. They might have a forest that can be partially logged for the timber for the houses. They mm. might have sand or gravel or other building resources, but um, there needs to be money coming in from other sources if this is even going to have a chance of being possible. Nothing like enough at the moment. Uh, I I want to go back to Makareta Wangavonovono, who we've got on the line from Egypt, uh, been at COP27. In your consultations, Makareta, you realise that there needs to be a lot more conversation about things like loss and damage in the communities. Can you tell me a bit about that? Um, We're really... You know, I don't think compensation has been discussed much because our people in different communities, uh, they, you know, they don't think like uh, activists. 
for them, they're just accepting it as of everyday life. It's God's will. So the anger, the, the agitation is coming from people like me, and you know, NGOs, uh, those who are, th- those who know, you know, the bigger question of why these things are happening, why the sea level is rising, why we are having frequent cyclones and flooding, you know, following that. Yes. So my my issue is that, and which I told uh, the, the NGOs who were present in our consultations, that we need to take conversation to the community. We need to take what we are talking about at the higher level, at the national, regional, and global level, to the community, and that needs to happen before we can even talk about compensation. Of course, they know, our communities know what they've lost. They know, you know, the implications of what moving means, what they're going to lose, that they will be leaving their ancestors behind. But the conversation that needs to happen as to why these things are happening and that this is not their fault, that they are innocent parties. Uh, Nisani, if I could come back to you, how much do you think people are now having the conversations in communities? And, and very briefly, what do you hope other countries might learn from your own experience? I think the, the conversations are, are increasing uh, throughout the communities now, uh, for the church, it's important for us to to help villagers understand that the rising sea levels have nothing to do with God's punishment or with anything that they have done wrong, and to make them understand that these are things beyond their control, mm-hmm. and um, there are ways that they can mitigate, but uh, a lot of this work needs to be done by people uh, in in other countries, and uh, what what I hope uh, other people will learn is that Pacific villages, Pacific communities, are struggling. Pacific governments are also struggling because they cannot fund the relocation on their own, and uh, common decency from the countries in uh, in in which uh, carbon emissions continue to increase. We would expect some common decency from them and to accept some of the responsibility towards the cost of relocating the communities which which have no option but to move. Indeed. That is where we'll leave it. Uh, I want to thank all of my guests uh, for joining me today. You just heard from uh, Netany Rika, who's Development and Communications Manager for the Pacific Conference of Churches. We also heard from Makareta Wangavanavana, who's Coordinator of the NGO Climate Talk, and Kate Lyons, who's The Guardian's Pacific Editor. ABCRN helps you understand the world. Find more of our stories on the ABC Listen app.